Vulnerability is a big buzzword lately. But how do we get more vulnerability in our lives? How do we create more of this thing we so talk about with such passion? Vulnerability. In this conversation with Virgil Robertson, you'll hear lots of courage. Courage to tell the childhood traumatic stories, courage to rewrite the story, and the courage to step into a better, brighter future. And Virgil talks about that towards the latter part of this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Virgil Robertson is here. He is a graduate. Virgil, when did you take the process? I took it in May, uh, Memorial Day weekend, May uh, 2019. 2019. And would you introduce yourself a little bit, describing your work? Yes, my name is Virgil Robertson. (laughs) And um, I am a psychodynamic psychotherapist and a licensed psychoanalyst. I've been in private practice and uh, group practice now for over 30 years. See individuals, couples, and groups. And in 2015, I became the executive director of a counseling center. So uh, besides um, doing my work clinically, I also oversee the organization of eight other clinicians and that works with the board to raise money to help those who cannot afford quality mental health care. Affordable mental health care is critical, is it not? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And uh, we raise funds every year, and those literally pay a minimum to even if they can't afford something. And we try to all see them because uh, it's so important to keep helping people and be available to people. I wasn't going to ask this, but the fact that you do this work and it feels so important, and I can, I know your passion for it. What is the cost of community, a society that neglects? It's mental health. The things that I see that people come into me after not being willing to go to it is uh, pretty severe, whether it's uh, the body that uh, breaks down or it's the coupledom that's really essential because many times they can't get back to each other, whether it's through addiction or affairs or all sorts of things, gambling that breaks up the whole financial situation. And then the kids. We see a lot of um, younger people as well as student, college students that have really suffered from the uh, depletion of no one going to get help sooner. So sometimes it's the adults who have to, you know, deal with their life as it was as a child, but sometimes it's the children trying to deal with their lives now about their predicament with their family or their circumstance. So without any of that, it can be disastrous. Suicide, 
drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, uh, you name it. It's uh, we we deal with it and have seen it all. And I have in my over thirty years of practice. It's 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 pretty de- debilitating. Virgil, I see you also navigating some pretty heavy stuff. How do you rejuvenate? How do you restore? How do you stay filled up so that you can be present on behalf of your patients, your clients? Well, I find getting outside and exercising to be the only thing that really can uh, give me the full scope of uh, self-care. So I play a lot of tennis, <laughs> but I also do a lot of laughter and joking around with my wife and stepdaughter and my sons. It, realistically, if I can't get out to tennis or walk or bike, it's more of the, the laughter. Um, I love humor and it just seems to replenish me, even with my staff. Uh, you know, after I took the process, my whole being changed because I became a lot more soft and funny uh, than I'd ever been before. And uh, they, they would tell me that. They said, well, we, you really are different. And so I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's a combination of, of things I grew up with, like singing and dancing. And my wife uh, and I dance around and sing around in the house as was with my stepdaughter. And then um, I do that in the car a lot. So I try to keep myself fluid because I tell you, if I get tight, Things don't work out. And um, a tennis pro used to tell me, he said, you know, you can you can hit a tennis ball with your you know three fingers if your wrist is loose. But if it's tight, it'll just you can't do anything. So I love the metaphor of uh, tennis on life and the similarity of how we show up. So, Virgil, why? Why would a, a psychoanalyst, a licensed psychoanalyst and a psychotherapist why would they take the Hoffman process? You know, I didn't know what the process was. I really didn't. I was intrigued and curious because my fiance and then wife Shannon had done so many, uh, had done the process, had done Q2s and knew all about it. And she just said, I really, I think you'd really love this. And uh, so I went into it in just a kind of a more naive state than I'd ever been. But I, I got there and somehow all the years, because I had to train as a psychoanalyst, which is eight to nine year training, uh, your own analysis, your own supervision, your own case studies, I mean, you name it. I found that it like it uh, skyrocketed me. And it was the marriage, quite frankly, of the energetic work, the mind and the emotions. And I had thought I had done some of that in one way, but I realized that I hadn't really done the kind of springboard that the Hoffman did for me that integrated all of those. Because as an analyst, and people still see me this way sometimes, that, oh, you're you're just in your mind, you're just in your thoughts. But it's psychodynamic. I'm very active in my sessions. And I believe there are many roads to Rome, as a cliche goes, to try to help people to get into their body and get into their their whole emotional part, yes, to regress or be on the couch if they need to, which I do a lot of that with, you know, patients. But to me, what the process did was it just integrated something that I never realized how much I needed to fulfill all of the stuff I'd gone through in my childhood trauma to my intellect, to <laughs> the spiritual part of me that does this because ultimately that's why I, 
I became a therapist is because I felt led to it for my own uh, work with an analyst. And uh, it wasn't something I thought, oh, I'll just do that. It really transformed me. But the Hoffman process has made it totally different for me now, really. Virtually. It's almost like you were saying, how can you integrate something that you don't even know is not integrated? So maybe the first step was discovering the lack of integration on the path towards then integrating and then carrying that back into your life. Yeah, I was all in my head, I think, more than I needed to be. I mean, not that I didn't help people, but gosh, I've seen such a a stark difference uh, when I came back in June of 2019 to now. People, I feel like I'm present with them. I don't, I think I was there, but I was like not all the way there. I feel like I'm just really there. And I'm not perfect. I have good days and bad days, but I I don't know. I, I somehow going through, my own just full tilt trauma experience of reframing, re-going on different or different road, just really letting myself open up changed how I, I, I could sit with somebody and be present because I had been present with myself in such a thorough way. I mean, my gosh, there's nothing that my mind impeded my time in the process. And I think, I, you know, spiritually, I think, I do, I thank God for that because I could have gone into it with my, you know, oh, I know this and I know that. And I've been to all this analysis and man, that fell away really quick. <laughs> really did. I, 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 I don't know. I think what people couldn't believe after they found out what I did, <laughs> they're like, what the heck? Who is this guy? How did he? How could he be so available? I, I, I surprised myself, really. <laughs> it is uh, takes some humility to let go of the framework and instead to step into this a different understanding, and yet still in the field where you are an expert in. Um, and so uh, you you start. I want to go back to what you said about being all in your head, because. This is an affliction that many, many people have. We we overanalyze. We get too analytical. We uh, stay too much in our head. Don't integrate into the rest of our being, our bodies, our emotions, our spirits. And so, why is that? Like, why why do we so many of us? suffer from that affliction of of being too much in our head what's really going on there virgil control it's all about control my mind i know that i always default to the obsession of thinking it out if i can just think it out then i'll be safe that's an old pattern that i had to really get through and I notice it now, and I can recycle it, I can own it, I can sit with it. But to me, it's as a man, I think men, quite frankly, do a lot more of this keeping it in their head because it can keep them safer and try to control it. So to me, that's what it's about, all about. It's about not willing to really let your body and your emotions and your spiritual life be open because you're trying to control it through your mind. And our mind is such a you know, it's such a big thing in our, our society. Everything is about think this out, do this out. You know, it's everything 
it can go right to the left brain. And yet our creative self is at the right brain. And I, God, I, I feel like when I'm there and in my work, it's more for me, it's more of an art than a science. So I find that I, I'm present and it's creative and rejuvenating even more so after doing the Hoffman, my gosh, than before when I could just go to all the theories and all the books I'd read and all this stuff, which does is hogwash, really. When you come down to it, if you're not with it, if you're not really sitting with a person and present with them, the books don't matter. They don't matter worth the damn. I mean, really, sorry, but they just don't. They just they, they they don't connect with the person. The person doesn't want somebody who's read a book. They want somebody who's going to be sitting there with them. So your presence with your patients has deepened, and you notice the quality of your work has has improved. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, it. it sometimes I find if I'm really, really the most honest that I could be. I learn and they learn, but I learn from them. It's not top down. It's not, it, it, it just can't be that way. Cause if it is, it's, it's not really as authentic and real and genuine. And that's what I think I came to from the process. I got so deep into the traumas that experiences I had, <laughs> you know, I couldn't be standing outside of it anymore. I mean, yes, I went through it and it, it doesn't define me by any stretch of the imagination anymore. I don't feel a victim to it. But I had to get to that place where I was with it, alongside it, so I could be alongside with those people that come to me and not in this how to sink double standard kind of thing. Virgil, you've talked a couple times, and I'm taking the cue, and I love it. Now, let's go there to your childhood, to the trauma you experienced. So what did you metabolize? What did you rewrite the story on? that has helped you show up differently. Take us to your childhood. What what happened? What was it like for you? Well, I was adopted at three weeks old. And uh, even though this is a recording, people don't know, I'm like six foot five, six foot four and a half now. My adopted parents at three weeks old were five foot two and four foot 11. That was my father and my mother, respectively. I grew up in a very small town. And um, the whole town knew I was adopted, and back in the 50s, you know, an adoptee was very strange. You, you throw a rock and hit someone who's adopted now, but back then it was kind of a stigma. So part of my trauma was not really knowing that I didn't fit in as much until when I was seven. Like kids do, I had, it was a really small town, 459 people. They were, we were in my backyard, and they were making fun, and they, they started, they told me. In, you know, as they were making fun of me, that I was adopted. And I didn't know that until then. And so the trauma for me was feeling this betrayal and uh, finding out that when I went to my mother and father that they uh, they felt so sorry and they cried and everything else they wanted to tell me. But, you know, <laughs> to find out from somebody else was really traumatic for me. It helped me in one regard to work through it so much because I, I started getting in touch with in the process of just their meaning well, but they're my my the way I'd held on to that is was I wasn't worth it to be told. I wasn't enough. And uh, I was different. And that difference and the outlier feeling all the way through after that was hard to trust people and to tr- other than myself. So that was part of it. And then last thing is that, you know, 
because of my father's uh, alcoholism and my mother's uh, way of being, it was a really tremendous uh, challenge to feel safe. I think they they tried to you know, have a, a child, a baby, that would help bring them together, and and uh, so I felt that pressure to uh, to try to do that, and that was a, a pressure that I also have worked through to try to let go of. And, and have let go of a lot of what I don't need to do or prove myself anymore. So those were the manifestations and getting to that through the process was so helpful to get on the other side since last point is my father would uh, had a long-term affair with a woman and uh, used to go to a drive-in movie and, and back then in the 50s and 60s, you know, and you'd go to the drive-in movie, and we'd drive up, my father and I, and I thought, this is great. I have a time with my dad. This is really fun. We get to see it on the big screen, some picture. But then his uh, mistress would drive up beside us, and he'd say, get in the back seat, Junior. That's what they called me. And and uh, I'd sit in the back seat, and they'd make out the front seat. And it was a horrible to know that there was a secret there that I would never <laughs> I just didn't know what to do with it to tell my mother, and that that played such havoc with me. Uh, years later, they divorced my parents in the seventies, and uh, he married this longtime mistress, and then he passed away. Uh, but I was devastated by his passing. But I always felt, quite frankly, that this this way, the surreptitious way that they kind of objectified me, was something I had to find out something different in my life. And that's what the process did, because I had been objectifying myself in my life. And I never realized it so much until the process, because I had, at time, abused alcohol up until 2002 when I stopped drinking. I had been promiscuous. I had done a lot of stuff to just, you know, get away from the feelings of what the trauma was like, because I was too afraid that would define me if I really dug into it. And quite frankly, the process helped me to not define myself anymore like that. <laughs> I'm not an object, I'm a person. <laughs> you know, one of the things we share in the process to try and help people understand is the nature of patterns and this the way in which patterns show up in our lives. So we, we can do it to others. Uh, we somehow... Uh, allow others, even inviting others to do it to ourselves. But as you just have been mentioning, we also do it to ourselves. So those patterns your mom and dad taught you, you could see that you were doing it to yourself? Yes. Yeah, it was ways that I wouldn't take myself seriously, uh, almost like it's an unconscious way or pattern, as you say, to reenact that and keep living that is that well that's the only way to be now i've had chances in my childhood and in my adulthood to to prove that wrong where i said i heck no i'm not going to be that i the other part of like i said earlier i felt like an outlier in that that small town my parents my mother especially believed oh i should be an artist so she put me in singing lessons and dancing lessons when i was three years old and that again was very strange to be in the small town when my father was on the lumber yard and and all this real estate and stuff like that and here i was the only kid that was dancing ballet and tap and della's dancing dolly <laughs> that was and i was one of three boys and you know 
again, it was another outlier. So you know, the kids would kid me and make fun of me and, and sometimes bully me. But I remember this PE teacher in seventh grade. He said, you know, virtually, you don't have to take this stuff. I was on the basketball team. I wasn't a starter. But he said, you know, just to show them. And that man was incredible because he encouraged me. And uh, one day, he also taught civics. He said, you know, just just do a ballet for them and show them. And so we pushed all the chairs back. And I went and got my leotards on and my tights, put it on a, uh, on a uh, phonograph. And I put my, uh, I did a ballet for them, the entire class. Changed my life with them. They respected me. Uh, and I felt different because I was proud of my dance. I wasn't ashamed of it. I was just tying it into feeling like, again, I, I was an object to be made fun of. And somewhere in me, I just felt I was better than that. And so the process helped me to integrate that again because there were parts of me that weren't what I felt was done to me or what I experienced. And that's what I think when you go through this, like so deeply, the process helps you energetically tie that together. There's no part of you that wants to hold on to that. You want to release it. It's just so cathartic. And to me, it just opens everything up in my life and did. Virgil, beautiful. I, I I just have to jump in because I heard you sigh. There's no part of me that wants to hang on to that anymore. And I also have to go back to that moment where, I mean, this thing could have backfired, and yet it sounded like it did the opposite. It liberated you. So your seventh grade class then witnesses you go away get on your leotards come back into the gym and you perform a ballet yeah and it's not even a gym it's a small classroom that they pushed they were all standing up against the walls or i mean it was you know it was not a big but i had to i had to yeah i had to let it open because i just couldn't take it anymore they on the basketball team they make fun of me and the classes they make fun of me you know you sissy you this that it's it, it was horrible and you know there was a there was just something i couldn't couldn't take anymore but he gave me a support to say you don't have to be this way you can move ahead and uh, it really did open it up i felt empowered uh and there have been things like that in my life that the process I claim is one of those that I got empowered by. I felt the support and the connections with all the teachers and the other so that were there were in the process. I, I felt really, really, I'm in a uh, in a transformation circle where I feel incredible support. To me, that's where I've allowed things to be different. And I, I go back to that time that I let that teacher help me to see that it could be a different outcome. I love how you see the through line in these moments in your life where they have been transformative for you, the teachers supporting you and you embodying the grace and strength of ballet in such a way that even the seventh grade bullies had to uh, respect you. What a beautiful, beautiful story. And then your process. And then you mentioned uh, the Hoffman transformation circles, these uh, bi-monthly two-hour sessions where graduates come together over Zoom 
and share and learn and engage in tools and practices. Yours is all male, is it not? Yes, it is. And, you know, I probably would have joined a circle, which would have been co-ed too. It wasn't, but it really has helped me because I think it is healed even more so that these men that I connect with, like myself, we really want things to be better. We see and own our own stuff with each other and we don't judge. We don't, you know, in any way posture. It, it feels like that would be like a false note we'd all feel and, and see. And I didn't know any of these other guys on it. So we all came together out of the blue when we were invited into the process or we did the process, uh, the circle together. And it's been really really important for me. It's helped me to keep my tools going. I I recycle a lot, but I I have done more of that, even more so be, because of the circle. I mean, recently, I just to digress, I was finding this thing, I didn't understand it. I was finding this thing where I was feeling judgmental of people who were older, let's put it that way. And I'm not an ageist. I'm not a, a guy who's down on people. I, I couldn't understand it. I really couldn't. I felt I, my intellect was saying, oh, Virgil, it's just because you're afraid of your own getting older. That's what I kept saying to myself. But then I realized there's got to be more because it just seems too simplistic. And I was up in my head. So I had this recently cathartic kind of time where I recycled it. And I got in touch with my fear that really wasn't about me getting older. It was my elderly parents. My parents were way in their 40s when they adopted me. I was scared of their aging. I was seeing their aging in front of me as I grew up. And I think it's that judgment that was being projected. And I recycled it and freed me up to be present with those in my life, in my sphere, that I feel were are aging and getting older, whether it's their physical or mental debilitation. It it just it changed my perspective because I wasn't coming from any headspace, but I was coming from an emotional open space about how I had been avoiding it because of my own anxiety and fear for my childhood. Virgil, what a, a great example of, well, I guess you have a combination of the pattern of judgment and then also maybe perception of yourself as having ageism and then leaving it at that. And yet it still kept returning, coming back. And so there's part of you that said, wait, there's something more here. And so what a tribute to the impact of unresolved issues from our past emerging again. Yeah. See, that's what I think the process does. It, it makes us curious. We can't, it's like a rock in your shoe. You can't keep trying to deny it's there. It keeps coming back to tell you it's there. And the process helps you say, wait, 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 it's there. Come on, here it is, not there. It's there. And that's that's what I was doing. I came on, why is this grabbing at me? Why is this gnawing at me? But I have a tool to deal with it. And so you went back and to understand the impact on that adopted guy who's nearly a foot taller than his parents and in this small town and and that his parents were also older and that that caused angst then and that angst still is was in you when you were working with this yeah and it comes across to me a lot because it, so it was hindering me right because if i hold on to that head i've got people i work with colleagues people that are 
older or we're going through challenges physically in their life. And I don't want to be in that judgment space because that's not who I want to be. I know that's not me, but, but I wasn't getting in touch with the deeper part until I recycled this about really what was grabbing me. And gosh, I, I thank, thank the process for me to be able, for what it's done for me to give me some way to do it and not try to just think my way through it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't working. Virgil, I think you shared this, but that when you took the process, you were engaged and about to get married. Do I have that right? Yeah. So my uh, fiance said, why don't you try this? So I went to it in this, uh, you know, naive way and learned so much, as I've said. But so we got married a, a month later, uh, uh, really a month to the day. I was in the process the end of May, the later, uh, Memorial Day, and a month later, June 29th of 2019, we got married. And, <laughs> you know, my MO before that was to be anxious and in my head prior to the process about obsessing about this has got to be taken care of, you know, very minute stuff. I was so surprised as we got, we're going towards the nuptials that I wasn't as anxious. I really wasn't. I was excited. I was, I was enthralled by what was to come because of the process. I felt like I was open to take something in. So the day of the wedding, Shannon, my wife, now, we had written out our, our, our vows. We didn't share our vows with each other prior. We just said we would, you know, be there for each other. And so when it came to my turn to do my vows to her, in the midst of them, I just broke into song. I was so filled with joy, and I changed the words to On the Street Where You Live for My Fair Lady, because I used to sing as an actor years ago, and I, I just changed the words of how it meant from the first night I had met her, and how it changed my life, and how, but it was that openness and joy that I couldn't have done, and I would have been terrified in one respect to opening and showing my vulnerability like that to a, a church full of people and, and people that certainly were there for Shannon and knew her much longer than they knew me. So uh, my kids were, <laughs> my stepdaughter, my friends were like shocked, but I was probably the most shocked of anybody because <laughs> I just, I couldn't let it out. It even surprised you? Well, yeah, because I, I don't know, there's some part of me that it was just out of, out of my gut. It wasn't coming from like, oh, I'm going to show it. It was like, I just couldn't, it was like, I had to release my song, as uh, one of my mentors said when I was in seminary. He said, you know, you got to open yourself up. And I, it's taken me these years to finally find a way to do it through the process, I think, to release my song. Virgil, you talked about uh, in being in seminary, and I know you have a master's in divinity. Describe that part, that chapter in your life. and and what you've gained from that so i uh, alluding to what i used to do i my parents you know put me in dancing and singing lessons so that was my focus i was an actor i went through college as a theater major i went to a graduate school's theater major and i got jobs as an actor and that's what i did all the years that i came to new york and then in the early 80s still working on my head stuff, I decided, oh, I should be married. So I got married to a woman who I had done a commercial with. I did a lot of TV commercials. And, you know, I just said, well, I, she's, she's really attractive. But I didn't know her. So I met her. And like, you know, a few months later, we got married. It was like, you know, whirlwind. And then we split up very shortly, not even a year or so after that. 
And that threw me for a loop. And so I went into the seminary out of the place of wanting to find out more spiritually of who I was, because I'd grown up in a sort of fire brimstone Southern Baptist uh, church in Missouri. And so as I, I got in seminary, I found this exciting thing to dig into the, into the Bible and dig into sort of thing, because it was very progressive seminary. It wasn't anything like I grew up in. It was very accepting and very uh, open about who you were and what you were and on your journey and everything. So what it changed in me was I could revisit what I thought was sort of intractable, concretized in my childhood, to approach my spiritual life in a different way. And it, my, my focus was on, it was a Master's of Divinity in Psychiatry and Religion. So it was also a lot of therapy courses and things like that that I could, you know, from the bookwork. And at that time, I discovered, this is for me. And I went into an institute and began training as a psychoanalyst at the same time I was in the seminary. And so that chapter was really what took me down the path of, of being a therapist, because Prior to that, I would have probably just said, oh, well, you know, I'll read self-help books or something that'll do it. The other one piece that I should say, Drew, is that in that time, as I read the Old Testament of he begat, she begat, and all these people begat each other, what it did for me is it said, Virgil, who begat you? Because I was adopted, and it was all closed. So it was in that year, 1989, I really felt I needed to find out who my biological roots where they were, my family. So my adoptive mother consented to, uh, my father had passed away, you know, 10 years before, had consented to let me uh, search. So I had to hire someone and and do the do the search in Missouri. And um, I got a call about a few months later, and she said, the social worker said, well, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, what's this? And she said, well, the good news is, is that we've found a match. The bad news is your mother, birth mother passed away in 1983. And, uh, you know, there's no way by this law of the state that I can connect you. That said, there's a computer bank in another state, and you could check in with them, and possibly your birth grandmother will, and we'll see what happens. So long story short, in uh, I did, ironically, Drew, uh, a Memorial Day weekend again, <laughs> I drove out to Missouri and my, met my big, large Irish family that didn't know I existed because my birth grandmother, grandmother was the only one that knew I was a part of their family because she had hid that from the family uh, when my birth mother had given birth to me in 1953. So <laughs> it, it was incredible. A, a, a lot of love birth aunts and uncles and cousins that embraced me and changed my life. Virgil, I'm, I'm seeing you over Memorial Day weekend in this gathering, walking around knowing nobody and introducing yourselves and people coming up to you. And then in, in the whole surprise and discovery of it, what, what was that like for you? Well, in both cases, whether it's in... In 1989, or it's in 2019, where people are coming up to me and discovering me, there's no way that it just just doesn't open your heart up to places. I mean, for an adoptee, you see somebody who looks like you. My birth aunt, one of my birth aunts looked like me and had the nose like I have. Funnily enough, in the process, there's a whole piece of seeing each other that you feel like you see each other's heart. 
And I felt like I, it reminded me of seeing my birth family's heart and how I was connected. Like when I was at the process, when it's I see you and I love you, feeling with each other of those people who I never knew before that, that week in 2019. It, it was it was the circus, you know, the old in the Lion King, the circle of life. It felt like it's a circle of life in some way because how does this happen? How do you connect with people that don't know you but see you and you connect with them unless you open yourself up in a vulnerable way? So I think you catch my drift. It was it was kind of a serendipity connection that I could never fathom. Virgil, have you always been such a expressive person emotionally? I hear it in your voice. It's so much a part of this conversation. Such a deep feeler you are. Have you always had this connection to your emotions? I don't think so. I think they were really, really truncated. I really was a, I could be a stick in the mud. <laughs> I don't think I was a very good actor because I was, I was wooden. I was trying to posture, be someone. So I can own that. I I think I am light years from that person who thought he could look like this or keep that persona or whatever that is no longer and hasn't been that for a long time. But it just continued like an onion, peeling and peeling away and more layers in the process. Did that like in warp speed? In no way. I would have been the thinking analytic, fix-it guy, you got to do this, you know, very, you know, I was not available to these kind of feelings in any way, shape, or form. And many of the listeners know this, but um, fairly recently, we've uh, brought on 13 new more trainees to train to be Hoffman teachers. It's an arduous two-year journey. But Shannon, your wife, has been accepted into that program. What's that like for her? What's it like for you? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I, I'm so proud. I am so proud. But I know because of who she is, her, her excitement, her effervescence, her who she is, how she cares for people I've seen firsthand since I met her. And she's done so much of the process. She uses the tools. She, it, to me, it's been exciting because I am so behind her what she's learning and what she can do. And I just feel like she's going to be a magnificent teacher because of all the teachers I've met, I've loved each one of them I've met, whether it's on a process that I did that week or on, you know, the audio things that were offered after COVID started. So to me, it's been so exciting to see how she has taken it to heart and how much my stepdaughter, her daughter, we support her 100%. All of her friends, our friends are so excited for her. I just, I'm just a proud husband. <laughs> if, I, I feel like I get the best of it all because I just get to get to enjoy and, and be supportive. So I love it. Yeah. And how how is that to navigate the stepdad role? It sounds like that it it's working. Oh, my gosh. You know, I feel if you talk about feeling gratitude and grateful for things, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. If you meet somebody, you could, it's, you know, you have to be open and it can be a roll of the dice. But my uh, stepdaughter, Peyton, is just, <laughs> I mean, we laugh, we kid each other, we have an incredible relationship. And, and my two sons, Will and Jake, are connected to her as well. And even though they're in their respective places, not 
in the tri-state area right now, and Peyton is with us. But it's just a very exciting time. And we have a great laugh probably daily or weekly with each other or over text. So it's been a hoot. Now, for me, it's been healing because I didn't have any you know, I didn't raise a daughter and I didn't know daughters, but I feel I've got the best of both worlds. I got a wonderful wife and a wonderful stepdaughter that I learned from. And they keep me uh, keep me laughing because people make fun of me in the way that I was not like the bullies. My tennis buddies, I like humor. I feel like people care for you when you can kid each other. And that's what I have in my life a lot with my colleagues, my friends, my family. Uh, so it's been really great. I really feel blessed. So. For her graduation gift, uh, Shannon gave her uh, the process for a week. So she did the process herself, and she's loved it and is using it. And my God, I wish I'd had that <laughs> at 22. <laughs> wow. So Peyton did the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, you never know. It's, it's like you, you have ways to invite someone and then you have to let go where it's going to go and she really has utilized it so i i just feel like you know so much a part of our whole fabric of our our family virgil i'm so grateful for this conversation for your heart your transparency what's it like to to tell your story well i similarly i feel kind of like i did at the process, there was a day that I uh, I remember very distinctly at White's, White Sulphur Springs being up. There was a, a bench above the Sulphur Spring itself that I sat on, and it maybe halfway through the week, and I sat there and, and I had cried, I had raged, I had gone through so many feelings, but at that moment I felt this kind of calmness and centeredness about my life in seeing it in ways that was embracing and not judging or negative or in my head, but just really kind of satiated. And that's what I'm feeling right now. I I have seen the power of this. I mean, when something comes up in my life, like in my, as a running uh, the center and, and there was a funding organization that wanted to make us jump through hoops and they had been funding us for years and it just became arduous but it wasn't what we were about in our mission and i used to take umbrage to it get upset and, and react and then long story short i came back from the process and i met with the board and i said radically because i got really centered i think we can be in this different and i felt empowered to just say to them let us let go of it let them use their money other places. And I just couldn't have done that letting go had I not been grounded from what the process. I felt so centered that I wasn't trying to force something or victimize something. But I said, and so we let go of that funding and it wasn't that hard at all because I was presenting it in a way that what was tied into what I felt our grounding of our mission was not to be continued to be pushed in ways that we weren't and who we were. So, and long story short, I feel that kind of calmness and greatness today with just feeling so cared for and loved and feeling a lot of love for the process and the people that I'm still connected to through the process. You know, I hear um, the word radius, like it's a, it's so much about identity and, and for you to understand and make peace 
with all of who you are, to integrate all of who you are, then sounds like it allows it to radiate from that core place outward. And one of the ways she's, uh, your work, you talked about your work with your patients, your marriage to, you know, your partner, you talked about your stepdaughter. So, and then, and then here you just talked about when you first came back, uh, how you redirected the board to step away from funding that was maybe distracting you from your mission. The radius of it all just keeps emanating outward. Do you see it that way? I do, but I feel like it's more for me, it's like that, the pulsing of the heart, you know, that beats and then there's like this reverberation. It feels like it's that, or when you throw a, you, you know, put a, a skip a rock into the pond and there's the ripples. I feel like that's what it feels like to me. There's this, there is this, uh, vibration, this vibrancy that comes out, but it's coming from a centered beating of a heart that wants to open up and connect to people and not diminish people, objectify people uh, in any way, but to learn, to keep learning and to try to give what's coming out of your heart as opposed to out of just on your head or whatever. It's still coming out of from that very, uh, very deep centered place. Virgil, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm grateful. I appreciate being able to share parts of this, and I, <laughs> I, I feel a lot of, lot of uh, gratitude with everything that I've learned and gotten from the process and, and working with everyone there. So, thank you. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.